Before I begin, I have to note that I'm speaking for myself and uh, my remarks should not be attributed to other uh, Federal Reserve uh, officials. This is the standard Federal Reserve uh, disclaimer. Uh, so speaking of the Federal Reserve, I think it's fair to say uh, that uh, in between coverage of uh, political campaigns last year, uh, the Federal Reserve System uh, received a, a substantial amount of media attention. For most of the year, uh, the focus was on the question of when the Federal Open Market Committee uh, would finally increase its target interest rate. Naturally, there was a good deal of press coverage when finally uh, we actually did that on December 16th and announced an increase in um, our discount, our, our, our target interest rate. I think that coverage was well-deserved because it was the first rate increase since we lowered the short-term interest rate uh, to virtually zero seven years ago in December of 2008. Raising interest rates marks a significant milestone for the United States uh, economy because it reflects the fundamental strength of the U.S. economy. Uh, and so I think that coverage was well-deserved. Now, um, now that the first interest rate increase is out of the way and behind us, Attention is going to naturally turn to how fast interest rates are going to rise in the coming year. And Jay had some remarks about that. <clears throat> so I'd like to flesh out that, uh, that, that issue a little bit. As always, I have to emphasize the future is uncertain. That's a bromide, I know, but neither I nor anyone else can tell you a definitive answer about um, what's going to happen. That said, the FOMC has provided some helpful thoughts based on our understanding of how the economy is likely to evolve and how we are going to need to respond as those conditions evolve. In a statement issued on December 16th with our, our decision, uh, the FOMC stated that, quote, the committee expects that economic conditions will evolve in a manner that will warrant only gradual increases in the federal funds rate. Now that statement, uh, um, naturally raises the question of what the word gradual means. And the committee has not formally adopted a definition of gradual, but I, you can glean some information, as Jay explained how this works, from uh, projections that all of the participants in uh, the FOMC meeting, meaning the governors and all of the presidents, only five voted at any one time, but all 12 Federal Reserve Bank presidents referred to as participants, um, that group submits uh, projections uh, at every other meeting. And those projections include projections of year-end uh, values for the target federal funds rate. Um, and it's, it's released in a, a document called the Summary of Ec Economic Projections, which you could find online. The median projection, as Jay said, for the year-end federal funds rate target over the next three years, uh, this year and the next three years too, um, rises at a percentage point a year. So it, it spreads out a bit. There are some who feel that rates are going to rise more rapidly, some who feel they'll rise a little less rapidly. But a percentage point a year is the median of FOMC participants. That's notably slower, as Jay noted, than the pace of rate increases the last tightening cycle from 04 to 06. But you have to interpret those numbers with care, that median projection. These are projections and they are not promises. Later in the same paragraph, the FOMC uh, said that the, uh, and I quote here, the actual path of the federal funds rate will depend on the economic outlook as informed by incoming data. This contingent uh, property of, of policy is worth emphasizing. 
As I said earlier, the future is uncertain, and we know that the appropriate path of monetary policy should depend on how economic conditions evolve. So one should expect that the Federal Reserve's interest rate target is going to rise at a pace that is gradual but dependent on the economic outlook, and that makes the discussion of the economic outlook today especially relevant. <clears throat> so to put that uh, current outlook in perspective, and this lines up with Jay's perspective, I think, uh, recall that the U.S. economy hit a low point in, during the Great Recession in June of 2009, and since then we've seen steady cumulative growth. Real GDP, as he remarked, um, an estimate of total production in the economy, uh, has risen at a rate of 2.2% since the recession ended. Employment's risen by almost 12 million jobs. The unemployment rate has fallen from a high of 10% uh, to a current value of 5%. My view is that growth in output and employment uh, at a moderate pace like this is likely to continue in 2016. And the basis for that view is that the household sector is relatively healthy and likely to remain so. Real consumer spending has risen by a solid 2.5% over the last 12 months due to the strong fundamentals, and Jay touched on a few of these. Real disposable income has grown more rapidly than spending, rising at 3.5% over the last 12 months. Household debt uh, remains well below the levels reached seven years ago, and the net worth of households has risen by $28 trillion over the last six years. A strong labor market is a key factor supporting consumer spending gains. Over the last 12 months, we've added 2.6 million jo new jobs, and the unemployment rate has fallen eight-tenths of a percentage point. We're beginning to see some signs of acceleration in wage rates as well. For example, average hourly earnings have risen by 2.3% um, over the last 12 months versus a 2.0% over the previous five years. Putting all this in uh, together, I would be surprised if consumer spending is, growth is not robust again next year. Uh, this uh, consumer spend, because as Jay noted, consumer spending um, accounts for two-thirds of the economy, uh, that's pretty critical uh, for uh, real GDP growth. But I think we're likely to do better uh, than uh, just uh, 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 how GDP would grow if there was no growth outside consumer spending. The housing market uh, is an area that also depends on the health of uh, households uh, and their economic well-being, and uh, that's also likely to contribute to GDP growth this year. Over the last four years, real residential investment has grown at an annual rate of 8.4%. Now, granted, uh, real residential investment has um, fallen sharply uh, recently in the Great Recession, it remains far below its, the peak uh, of uh, pace of investment that we saw uh, private, prior to the Great Recession. So the housing market's bound to feel sluggish to some, but we have seen real momentum uh, nationally and a steady advance in home prices uh, in most markets over the last uh, three years. New housing starts have increased by 16% over the last 12 months, and employment in residential construction has increased by five and a half percent. Taking into account the prospects for household incomes, employment and wealth, I expect residential investment to continue to add to GDP growth this year. So what about other types of investment? Uh, Non-residential fixed investment, that's a technical term as Jay calls them. Uh, this is business investment that excludes, a category that excludes investment in inventories. 
So um, let's call it business investment, has grown at a solid 5.5% annual rate over the last six years. But that growth has fluctuated substantially over that period. It's been as high as 12% early in the recovery. It was, it was bouncing back from recession lows, but it was only 2.2% last year. The largest portion of non-residential investment spending is in uh, what's called the equipment category, which grew rapidly immediately after the recession and continues to expand. Investment in intellectual property, a second category of business investment, uh, that includes uh, computer software, uh, business research, um, original ar artistic creation, essentially intangible uh, forms of capital, has grown steadily since the recession. And spending across those two categories accounts for three-fourths of business fixed investment, and it's grown at more than 3% over the last four quarters, and I expect it to remain strong. The remainder of business fixed investment is a category uh, called non-residential structures, essentially buildings and the like. Spending in this category grew rapidly from the end of the recession through the first quarter of 2014, uh, but it's contracted somewhat since then. The source of the decline is fairly clear. New oil wells um, are counted as uh, structures, and oil producers have slashed capital spending in response to uh, lower oil prices. So if you put it all together, looking, looking ahead at the outlook for um, non-residential investment overall, it seems clear that there, there are many businesses that continue to identify uh, profitable opportunities to install new capital. Uh, innovation continues apace, um, and corporate cash flows are strong, and financing is um, readily available for an array of firms. I expect solid growth in this category, overall business investment this year, despite the drag from energy sector spending. Rounding out the domestic picture, government spending is subtracted from GDP growth since the stimulus-related spending uh, peaked right after the recession. More recently, growth in state and local tax revenues has fueled spending growth that has offset the drag on GDP growth that comes from the declining uh, federal spending. Um, the recent federal budget deal, I think, is going to provide a boost to federal spending this year. And state and local spending in much of the country is going to continue to benefit from uh, rising revenues. Uh, net exports, on the other hand, um, I agree with Jay here, they're likely to subtract from growth this year as the trade deficit widens. Many domestic producers now face a much stiffer competitive pressures from overseas due to the value of the dollar on foreign exchange markets having risen by over 20% in the last year and a half. So putting this all together, uh, it suggests that near-term real GDP is likely to continue to grow at a pace very close to the 2.2% rate we've seen since the end of the recession. Growth at that rate uh, would generate strong employment gains and further declines in unemployment. Un the unemployment rate is already fairly low, however, and arguably has reached a level uh, consistent with longer-run maximum employment. As a result, I think we should expect growth in employment in real GDP to start tapering off over the next year or two to a rate consistent with the growth in the working age population, which is about a half a percent a year. If productivity growth, this is the amount of GDP produced by the average worker, if productivity growth continues um, at about one and a quarter percent, um, as it has during this expansion, um, that implies that we're going to converge to a GDP growth rate of around one and three quarters percent. So a step down from the 2.2 percent rate we've seen, uh, but something I think necessitated by 
uh, the tightness of labor markets that we're seeing now. So you might wonder how this outlook for the local um, compares, how the outlook for the national economy compares to the outlook for the local economy. Uh, the answer is that it's very much in line, um, and, and if anything, um, performance uh, in the state and the region has been stronger than the rest of the nation. I, I have the same figures, access to the same figures Jay does. 2.2% year-over-year job growth for North Carolina as of the re re most recent month versus 1.9% for U.S. as a whole. 1.8% uh, for the Raleigh, Cary, Durham area uh, as a whole. Uh, so right in line or a smidge above uh, the national averages. Meaningful job growth uh, in the region has occurred across all private business sectors uh, virtually and a particular strength is being shown in construction, finance, and uh, professional and business services. Housing markets in the region continue to recover. Our reports from around the state suggest that sales are robust and home prices are rising in most markets. Vacancy rates for commercial properties continue to fall, suggesting healthy markets for non-residential real estate in the region as well. Looking forward, I think that the prospects for the Triangle region uh, to continue to outperform the national economy are strong. And um, I base that on, uh, as Jay point highlighted uh, very usefully, the high level of educational attainment uh, hereabouts. Because for regional economic prospects, human capital is, is just paramount. Uh, and uh, the Triangle has that going for it, like very few other uh, regions in the country. So the economic outlook isn't complete until we talk about inflation. The FOMC's 2% inflation target is based on a particular measure, Jay highlighted this, the price index for personal consumption expenditure. That's created as a byproduct of the national income accounts. This measure has risen by only four-tenths of a percent over the 12 months that ended in November, as he pointed out. Obviously, he highlighted this, a major factor is energy prices, uh, the fall in crude oil from uh, over $100 a barrel to uh, gosh, 32 barrel, uh, 32 something uh, this morning on the exchanges. The accompanying declines in the prices of gasoline, heating oil, and natural gas have head held down headline inflation, but they can't register substantial declines forever. Uh, and uh, the, in fact, futures markets uh, suggest a, an upward near-term trend uh, in oil prices. If you strip out the volatile energy and food components um, and get a look at the core price index, that often provides a better gauge of where overall in inflation is likely to head next. Core inflation has averaged 1.3% over the last 12 months, closer to the FOMC's target. An important factor holding down core inflation has been the rise in the dollar on the foreign exchange markets, uh, and that's because that's reduced import prices. Um, in short, inflation has been held down by two factors, the falling price of oil and the rising value of the dollar, but neither factor is likely to depress inflation indefinitely. After the price of oil bottoms out, I would expect to see headline inflation move significantly higher. And uh, after the value of the dollar ultimately tops out, which it will, core inflation should move back towards 2%. Measures of expected inflation from asset prices and surveys are consistent with that projection. And thus, I remain confident uh, that barring subsequent shocks uh, or unexpected developments, inflation is going to move back to the FOMC's 2% objective over the near term. So now would be a good time to return uh, to that question of how fast interest rates are likely to rise. As I noted earlier, the pace is going to depend critically on the evolution of the economic outlook as we see the incoming data. 
if oil prices bottom out and the value of the dollar peaks, but inflation does not move back to 2%, a shallower path for interest rates would make sense. If inflation moves back rapidly to 2%, uh, however, uh, a more aggressive path uh, might be in order. While there's uncertainty about the pace at which monetary policy rates will rise, the case for an upward adjustment in rates at this time should be relatively clear. One way to see that case is to look at real interest rates, that is, interest rates adjusted for expected inflation. The federal funds rate has been near zero for over seven years. A variety of measures indicate that over time inflation has tended, has, I'm sorry, that inflation um, has been expected to trend back to 2% or higher. And, and that's useful because the FOMC's announced target for inflation is 2%. The difference, the federal funds rate minus expected inflation is what economists call the real interest rate, inflation, essentially inflation-adjusted interest rate. It has been negative for more than seven years. Right now, uh, the federal funds rate is 35 basis points if you subtract off <clears throat> say 2% as an expected inflation figure, you get a number like uh, minus 1.65. This is an exceptional occurrence by historical standards. The way to understand this is to recognize uh, that a real interest rate is a price. It is the price at which businesses and households can exchange purchasing power today for purchasing power tomorrow. Uh, this price ought to depend on the relative supply and demands for goods and services today and goods and services tomorrow, just like all relative prices do. Low or even negative real interest rates make sense when economic activity is currently weak in order to encourage people to shift spending from the future to the present. Conversely, when economic activity is strong or growing rapidly, real interest rates ought to be higher in order to encourage people to delay uh, spending. The current strength of U the U.S. Uh, economy, particularly the robust growth in consumer spending, I think is a powerful argument for higher real interest rates now. Apart from the cyclical movements in real interest rates associated with business cycle fluctuations ac in activity, there are longer run swings in real interest rates that policymakers need to take into account. The supply of and demand for savings and investment can shift noticeably over time in response to more gradual economic developments. Demographic shifts, for example, are important. Uh, the relative balance of people who are in the part of their life cycle where they're savings versus those who are in the part of their life cycle where they're dissaving or, or borrowing. Uh, changes in productivity growth, which after all have to do with the growth of sort of the fundamental earning power. Um, that people have. Improvements in financial intermediation affect the de degree to which people uh, need buffer stocks of savings to ensure against uh, unexpected financial uh, uh, shocks uh, versus having to just rely on insurance arrangements or other uh, risk-sharing arrangements. Um, all of those are capable of altering the trend real interest rate, the average real interest rate around which short-term real interest rates uh, fluctuations take place. Economists call this trend rate the natural real interest rate, and th they do that to distinguish it from the real interest rate that actually prevails at any one time. You also may hear the word equilibrium uh, real interest rate. 
so this is cropped up in the speeches, statements of, of other Federal Reserve officials. If you look back over the last several decades, a downward movement in actual real interest rates is clear, suggesting that the natural real interest rate uh, has fallen. In recent years, economists uh, using a variety of models have estimated that the current natural real interest rate is quite low. Uh, the model estimates cluster around zero or just above. This is one reason to expect that in this expansion, short-term interest rates are not likely to reach the levels reached in previous expansions, a point Jay made uh, in his presentation. And that assessment's also consistent with uh, longer runs, uh, funds rate projections of FOMC participants that are shown in that dot plot, the, the, the summary of ec economic projections that I discussed earlier. So I agree that we are in a period of lower than average real interest rates and that this has implications for monetary policy. But the important point to recognize is that uh, the actual real interest rate, now about minus 1.6 and 1.7 percent, is substantially below our estimates of the current natural rate, uh, which as I noted are around zero. So there's a fair amount of headroom uh, for us to raise interest rates uh, and get back to a more typical average or trend uh, level of real interest rates. Moreover, while the natural rate of interest uh, in real terms is lower than usual right now, over time one might expect it to rise as it reverts to its longer run mean. So despite the relatively low natural real interest rate, there are still strong reasons, I believe, to expect real short-term interest rates to rise in the near term. The broad takeaway I'd suggest from all this is that even though interest rates are like, likely to be lower than usual for the next few years, monetary policy is still highly accommodative right now. Interest rate increases within the range envisioned by FOMC participants would be relatively slow by historic standards and would still leave policy in a very accommodative stance. Such increases should be viewed as a sign of strength of the U.S. economy, uh, in my view, and to me, uh, that is uh, very good news. So I thank you for your attention. That concludes my remarks. Well, thank you to you both. My name is Tim Giuliani, and I have the honor of facilitating the questions today that have that many of you have sent in. And I think, Jay, to your point, we have a highly educated uh, workforce, uh, and we have highly educated people here in the room that are asking highly educated questions that might not be so easy. <laughs> so the first question, uh, to get us started, uh, negative interest rates are generally viewed as an act of desperation, signaling that traditional policy options have proven ineffective. Several European countries have moved to negative interest rates. Germany, Switzerland, Sweden, Denmark, and the Netherlands, and France appears headed that way soon. Since quantitative easing has supposedly ended, do you see negative interest rates coming to the U.S. this year, accompanied by QE4? <laughs> I don't anticipate that. Um, negative interest rates, though, I don't think should be viewed as a sign of desperation. Um, you know, with a, a longer run, downward trend that we've seen in real interest rates, as I discussed. Um, you're going to see nominal interest rates also ha have this longer run downward trend. So rather than, you know, in the 80s where real interest rates were about 2 or 3 percent um, and inflation was running about 4 percent, 
add the two together, you get you know six to seven percent for nominal interest rates. Now with inflation running two percent or a little um, below, but real interest rates you know uh, so low, you're going to get nominal interest rates fluctuating around a lower trend level, and so they're going to bounce against the zero bound. What is the zero bound? Well, it's just the the fact that it's hard to push interest rates below that because paper currency doesn't earn interest. And so people always have the option of holding a lot of paper currency and that, that limits the ability of a central bank to push interest rates below zero. When we cut interest rates to zero in, to near zero, the target range for the funds rate to zero to 25 basis points in December of 2008, we were thinking about that. And so we, we kept that bound a little bit away from zero. Other central banks, though, since then have experimented and pushed rates, the, the rates they charge financial institutions below zero, some as low as, as you point out, seven, negative 75 basis points. They can get away with that because holding billions of dollars of currency is kind of a costly endeavor. And so it doesn't earn exactly zero. It earns something less than zero. Um, so they've, um, people now refer to the effective lower bound rather than the zero lower bound in interest rates. I think it, it could be something that happens with greater frequency uh, if uh, the trend in real interest rates is low, but I don't think it should be viewed as abnormal or emergency or, or dire circumstance. Uh, so, uh, Jay, next question. Does job growth beget population growth or does population growth beget job growth? And maybe as it pertains to the triangle. Well, yeah, and that's a good question. I don't know if I have an exact answer for that. I think it's difficult to disentangle those those two sorts of things. Um, but you know, I guess in general, what I would say here say is that as it relates to the triangle, I mean, obviously, the quality of living here is is very, very good, and that that attracts people to come here. And as they come here and move here, um, they need houses, they need goods and services, and things of that, and that creates an opportunity for businesses then to provide those goods and services and, and provide the, the employment growth. You know, conversely, um, because you have a, a highly educated sort of workforce here, um, businesses want to want to locate here and, you know, um, to, to attract, the, the, you know, to use those sorts of people. So we economists say there's kind of an endogeneity uh, sort of uh, issue here. These two things are kind of running around. It's difficult to entangle the two sorts of things. But I guess the bigger policy question, you know, here would be uh, what you want to do. You, know, you can't change the climate. Uh, you know, in a short-term sort of sense. I mean, anyone sitting here can't really do that. It is a great climate to live here, but as long as the underlying fundamentals remain good here in terms of, you know, the business environment and, you know, the quality of life and the opportunities you have here, as long as you don't kill that off, you're probably going to continue to make this a highly attractive <clears throat> place for people to want to move, and then those two things will, will move in tandem. Staying on a similar topic, so Wake County in the triangle is growing 62 people a day. 20 or so are born here, the other 40 are moving here. So obviously you're trying to keep up with the growing housing market to keep up with the influx of newcomers. So how might you expect the increased interest rates to impact demand for home purchases? Well, I, um, I, to the extent that um, rising short-term rates over time affect uh, mortgage rates, you'd, you'd expect some effect. Uh, there is some elasticity of demand with regard to uh, mortgage interest rates. It will cut back a little bit, but uh, you know, I, I tend to think of that in, in terms of the, 
the, the magnitude of the interest rate changes we're, we're, we're going, likely to see, that effect's going to be minor. And keep in mind that mortgage rates are, are, are tied closely to longer-term interest rates uh, because a mortgage is a longer-term financial instrument. And those interest rates already build in an expectation of a sequence of likelihood of a, uh, a sequence of uh, short-term interest rate increases by the Fed um, that's pretty substantial. Um, and so they're not likely to move much um, except in as much as the market's a little bit surprised by um, the extent to which our moves are, are a little bit different than the market expects. So uh, a whole lot of these interest rate increases are already built into mortgage rates, so I wouldn't expect um, uh, you know, an outsized in, uh, impact. Can I add on that? If you look at history, um, whenever the Fed goes into a tightening cycle, it initially does not kill off the, the housing market. Um, interest rates have to come up a significant amount before that, that starts to happen. As Dr. Lacker points out, um, the, ten, the mortgage rates were based off the 10-year Treasury, and, and there's also some tightening already priced in, into that. But I would also argue that I think that what you're going to see in this, you know, when we get closer to the end of the cycle, I think you're going to have a yield curve that's very flat at a very, very low level. You know, so let's say two years from now, I think you're looking at a yield curve that's essentially flat, roughly at 3% um, or so. I don't see a lot of movement in the long end of the curve. And the reason behind that is, again, some of this is already priced into markets, but more importantly, if you look at the comparable yield in, say, Japan, the 10-year uh, government bond in Japan, it's only 30 basis points. The 10-year yield in Germany today is only 60 basis points. And those, those rates aren't coming up significantly anytime soon. And so as soon as the back end of our curve starts to come up, you're going to see capital inflows into the United States. It probably means the dollar gets stronger, but it also means that the long end of the curve remains well-behaved. And so, you know, a 3% three three Treasury rate is, is consistent with what? You know, 4.5% 30-year fixed rate sort of mortgage. That's not going to kill off the housing market, particularly not around here. So I think the outlook for the housing market around here remains pretty favorable. Thanks. I, if I could just offer one more comment about the local housing market. What North Carolina and a lot of um, areas in my district that goes from Maryland down to South Carolina extends out to West Virginia, the 5th Federal Reserve District, Richmond Federal Reserve District, have done. What a lot of states, a, a characteristic they have that's very useful for the housing market is that the supply of buildable lots is relatively elastic. The, housing markets that get into trouble are ones where the supply of, of lots is inelastic, the supply of houses is less inelastic, and so increasing demand drives up prices rather than drive up supply. And um, that's, um, that's where we got into trouble in the boom, where people were making loans whose, um, where the creditworthiness of the borrower was contingent on significant price appreciation. Uh, and then when price appreciation turned, that's when the, the subprime uh, disaster happened. So uh, the, the extent to which North Carolina's been able to avoid that in, in the housing markets here is, has been uh, good, uh, and uh, continuing that, that characteristic will be useful. Next question. Will we see another recession before the end of the decade? Yes. Um, I don't know how it's going to happen. Um, and there's no magic number, right? We've, we've been in this expansion now for six years. Um, so it's getting maybe a little bit long in the tooth, but if you go back to the 90s, that one lasted maybe nine years or something like that. 
I think you have to ask yourself how do recessions happen. They happen one of two ways. The first is when something in the economy gets out of balance and then has to correct, like the housing market in the last cycle, or before that, the tech boom, okay? And before that, going back 20-some years, too much commercial real estate in the 1980s, okay? So something gets way out of balance and then it corrects and it pulls the economy down with it. So with that, when you look around, you say, what's wildly out of balance in the U.S. economy today? You know, I kind of struggle to say what's wildly out of balance. I mean, one thing I'm watching, it's not a, you know, I'm not flashing red yet, but corporate leverage is starting to go up. Um, again, it's not so high or increasing so much that I think it's going to be a 2016 sort of recession, but that's one thing I would look at. The other thing that causes is recessions would be what we refer to as exogenous shocks, things that you can't foresee, like a war in the Middle East or a war with Europe and Russia or something like that. So those things we all know are out there. Right? And if something like that were to happen, that clearly could be, depending on what it is, could be enough to put you into a recession. Um, but that endogenous sort of thing, the thing that, that out of balance sort of thing, you know, again, I don't think we're at that moment sort of yet, but if, if you know, Dr. Lacker and his colleagues continue to raise interest rates and corporate leverage continues to go up, sooner or later something's going to break, and my guess it would be it'll, be, it'll break before the end of the decade. I'll, I'll give a slightly different answer. I'll just say maybe. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that's not just sort of, uh, you know, dodging the question. Uh, you know, the evidence suggests that the probability of a recession in a given year doesn't depend on how long a time it's been since the last recession. And the probability is, you know, rarely one. So, there, you know, there's a chance we go into 2020 or 2019, depends on what year you count as the end of the decade, not having had a recession, and there'll be a probability of a recession, but there'll be a probability that we get to the end of that year without a recession too, so it could happen. So let's go back to one of the more, maybe more challenging. So how will rising interest rates affect interest expense on the U.S. government debt compared to pre-2008? So the average maturity of the government debt right now is five years, right? Mm -hmm. Somewhere around there. Um, so as interest rates rise, it will increase the overall um, debt payments of the government. Right now it's about 1% of GDP, what the, what the government pays in terms of the interest expense. And if, if you look at the Congressional Budget Office's long-term projections going out the next 10 years or so, they think that it'll get up to around 3 or 4% of, of GDP, which sounds like a big swing, but I think the long-term average is roughly around 3%. Clearly, we have more debt today than we did you know, in, in past decades. GDP has also gone up as well. Um, but the, also, the swing variable here is the interest rates. And if we're both correct, and we don't believe that interest rates are going to go back to where they were, say, in the 90s or in the 80s or something like that, then, then interest expense, everything else equal, remains um, manageable um, at, at this point. And, you know, another thing, people get all freaked out about that, you know, foreigners are going to start dumping U.S. Treasury securities. I mean, I don't really buy that, that sort of notion. I mean, what's the alternative? Uh, you know... A, you can't invest in China, and B, even if you could, would you want to invest in China right now? Um, you, people say Europe, you know, Europe, 
Okay, well, that's not really a viable sort of option right now, given everything that's happened over there. And then when you start to think about it more, there's not a European bond, right? There's lots of different countries. Um, and the most creditworthy would be Germany, but the size of their corporate bond market is like a quarter the size of our uh, government bond market, about the size of ours. So for better or worse, US, the U.S. Treasury securities are going to remain the gold standard for global investors, I think, for a very, very long time. And I still don't see, I don't know what it would be that would, international investors start to dump treasury securities. Yeah, I agree with Jay that uh, interest expense is not likely to be an issue for a U.S. Um, federal uh, uh, budget uh, for quite a while. I think the bigger problem for the budget is the entitlement uh, expense uh, explosion that starts um, at the end of the decade and continues after that. And that has the potential, if not handled well, of uh, eroding uh, the status that you allude to uh, of the U.S. Treasury uh, market in the U.S. in the world markets. So turning our attention, China. It's a very different country, but we have two questions here that really uh, come to the heart of sort of expectations and impacts, and I think both of you, both of you touched on this, but maybe could you clarify or help the audience set expectations on how these sort of global economic concerns, maybe as they relate to China, are, are going to impact the U.S. economy and to what extent you can tie that back to the triangle? Well, I, I think Jay did a good job of putting um, our uh, exposure to um, uh, what's going on in China into perspective. Right. Um, I, the, you note that, the, that our, our trade exposure is small uh, relative to other countries, and then the, the fraction of that that constitutes direct trade with China is small. Now, granted that there, there is um, some spillover effects to the extent that uh, problems in China or, or slowing growth in China affect other emerging markets, and that affects uh, demand for U.S. products. You have to take that into account. But even with that, I think the, the uh, analogy to what happened in 1999 and 1998 is apt. Um, I think we learned there that it was very easy to overestimate the effect of uh, slowing uh, Asian growth on uh, U.S. economic prospects. Um, and uh, so I think we, we need to be cautious in reacting to this. So. So again, if you look at our direct exposure to China in a trade sense, it's very, very little. Um, so we export about $120 billion to China. I know that's a big number, but we're in a $17 trillion economy. It's less than 1% of our GDP. Um, and again, you can kind of gross these things up as much as you want. You can say, yeah, if China has some real hard landing, it's going to affect you know, Taiwan, and it's going to affect um, other countries in the area, and that's going to reverberate around the world. Even if you gross it up to the highest, though, and go back to that chart that I showed you earlier, only 10% of our value added is attributable to final spending in the rest of the world. So that's pretty small. Two, in terms, so financially, right? Okay, so we all know the Chinese stock market was down 7% last night, and we know that our stock market's getting, or was, getting whacked um, you know, earlier today, okay? Um, so what about the financial uh, consequences of all this? Well, we have very little financial exposure to China. Uh, because of capital controls there. I mean, this is not like subprime where everybody else held our, around the world held our subprime mortgages. Very few people have a lot of exposure to China. So, um, you know, I, I don't, wouldn't think a Lehman Brothers sort of thing were to happen um, in China. And then thirdly, I mean, you know, the Chinese authorities can respond to these sort of things. So if you take the worst case scenario, 
and you say, okay, so what if they have a bad loan problem there and then it affects the banks and there's a credit crunch, okay? At the end of the day, the Chinese authorities have the financial ability, if they need to, to recapitalize their banking system. They have done twice in the last 25 years. I don't think for a second they would hesitate to recapitalize the banking system. If you look at the debt of the central government in China, it's only 15% of GDP. And to put that in that perspective in the United States, depending on what measure you want to look at, ours is somewhere between 80 to 100% of GDP. And so essentially when you recapitalize a banking system, what you do is you take the bad loans from the private sector, you move it onto the public sector's balance sheet. That's essentially what they would do. And politically, at the end of the day in China, it's all about social stability, which makes a lot of sense. If you're President Xi and you're sitting in your office and you're looking out the window, what do you see? You see 1.4 billion people sitting out there and the last thing you want to do is piss them off, right? And so, and so everything in China is viewed through the prism of what does this mean for social stability? And so if they need to, in a worst case scenario, if they need to recapitalize their banking system, again, politically, I don't think they would hesitate to do so. I sleep rather well at night, thank you very much, when it comes to the question of China. All right. Which industries are most attractive for growth and investment? <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I mentioned some that were uh, strong here um, in the, the region. Um, you know, we, there's been this rebound in construction, but, you know, more broadly, you've got to look at um, you know, things that involve human capital and knowledge. Uh, Low-skilled manufacturing is something obviously we've sort of lost in the U.S. over the last couple of decades, um, but the, uh, you know, the manufacturing sector that involves higher technology and, uh, you know, more complicated, more advanced, more cutting-edge things is obviously strong. Um, business services uh, of a variety of forms, financial intermediation, you know, and, as a Fed official, I stay away from picking sectors, and I'm not going to give you any stock tips here, but um, you know, broadly speaking, uh, what's going on in technology is pretty exciting for the long run for the U.S. economy. Yeah, and I would just say generally anything that's kind of auto, um, auto, um, anything that can be automated, right? I mean, that's what we've done over the last few decades. We've automated more and more. Our manufacturers can compete with anybody around the world. We just don't pay low, you know, we don't, we don't, nobody who's in our factories Right, because it's all automated, but the way we compete now, not only in the manufacturing sector, but more and more in terms of the service sector, is automating sort of things. Okay, so whether that's robotics or artificial intelligence or anything like that, I think that's the wave of the future, and I think that's going to have profound social implications um, when those things start to happen, and it means that we're going to have to be, become more and more and more educated to stay ahead of that sort of curve. So, but again, I think that's for the investment opportunities. That's where really the, you know, in general, uh, what kind of the investment opportunities are. Okay, last question. So given your expertise on the economy, and a question as a chamber and an economic development entity we get all the time, moving to the area, a business, uh, a young family, give us your answer. If someone close to you were to ask you, looking out over the next decade in the triangle, would you move? Absolutely. I'd um, say the same thing. Yeah, I think you've got a, I think you've got a good thing going on here, uh, not only in terms of the climate and, and the, um, the, the quality of life and everything, but you know, in terms of the educational background, three strong major universities, plus a lot of other universities, 
in this sort of area. So a highly educated sort of, uh, of area. I think businesses are gonna continue to come here, and as long as politically you don't do anything to kill that golden egg, um, I think it's gonna remain a very attractive sort of place to, uh, to move. Yeah, uh, you know, as I said in my remarks, human capital is everything when it comes to regional economic prospects. Um, the people move, firms move here for the workforce. Uh, it's highly educated, highly skilled. Other highly educated, highly skilled uh, people are interested in moving here because of all the spillover benefits of having a workforce that has the characteristics that you point out with uh, such high educational attainment uh, that has spillover benefits for the quality of schools, quality of life, and prospects. If you were to separate from your current employer, there would be other employers employing the type of worker that you are. So it, it's a, a dynamic that feeds on itself and it, it uh, creates excitement in, in, in just a, a few regions around the country uh, like this. And, and uh, I, I think this region really stands out uh, na nationwide. Well, thank you both. Thank you. And we, we want to thank everyone for watching online. We appreciate everyone that took time to come here this morning. On your way out, please make sure to grab a copy of The Economy and Business uh, we have for you on your way out. We remind you that on RaleighChamber.com that you will have the slides and the speech uh, material there for you. And thank you, and here's to a very prosperous 2016.